Good morning. My name is Bill Safestrom. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 through 18 from the New American Standard Bible. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The word of the Lord. How are you all doing? Actually, let me go back to that picture for a second. Anybody venture a guess on what that is and where that was taken from? Yeah, that's uh, taken from Snoqualmie Pass. I didn't take it. And the orange glowing lights in the back are the wildfires. And then the white lights are the lights of Seattle. It's a pretty cool place we live in. And then, of course, the cluster of stars, that's the Milky Way. Uh, I do love nature. It reminds me that uh, I am not alone and that there is an intelligent being behind all that I see. And today... Uh, We are going to continue in our series through the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 2 today. The title is Help. And uh, I'd like us to think today about uh, what it means that God is our help. Chapter 2 begins with a bit of the creation narrative that we were created in God's image. And then we fell. And then there's redemption from the fall. Uh, Chapter 2 teaches us that we are great. Human beings are amazing, beautiful, untouchable by anything else. Nothing 
comes even close to us in creation, we're made to rule even over angels. And then, even though we were made to be great, we uh, fell from grace. Great was our fall, and we became broken, and we marred the image of God in which we are created, sullied, were bent, twisted, and warped, uh, what one theologian calls curved in on itself, that we are perpetually self-oriented. And the only possible help, chapter 2 says, comes through the intervention of God himself. That any other source of help out there, possible, eventually contributes to the problem. And it layers on, uh, on top of the problems we already had that we were trying to solve, and we become locked in. In our condition, we are stuck. And you know this. Have you ever tried to help someone? Like really consider what helping another person entails. It gets very complicated very fast. It's a very tricky endeavor. How many parents, uh, as their kids grew, uh, grow up, eventually put their arms up like this and said, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. And I don't know when to say it or not say it. I feel lost. How many parents have warned me and Susie saying, oh, I know you think your kids are perfect. And they are. The only human beings more perfect than my kids are their kids, I think. But they, they warned us, wait till they're teenagers. And then you're going to go like this. I can't even imagine it. But I am told that it becomes very complicated as they get older. When someone is very broken and they're weak and they're helpless, the slightest touch from somebody trying to help can create ripple effects and complicate the matter. And not only that, but the one trying to help often gets triangled in to the problem and they become vilified and love turns to hatred and pain and hate and death grows and grows in the system and it leaks out all over the place. It is so hard to help someone. It is an incredibly challenging feat to try to actually be helpful. Um, today's chapter has lots of verses and it's got lots of words and uh, I uh, wanted you to hear it read and I, want you to, I wanted you to feel a little bit uh, confused by it. And what we're going to do is we're going to simplify it and we're going to summarize it. And um, if you wanted me to preach chapter 2 for a year, I think I could have. Uh, nobody wants that. And so we're going to do chapter 2 in one sitting through two points. First, great. And second, greater. We start with great in verse 7b says this, you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. 
So we begin with a bit of the creation narrative. And as soon as I say creation, I know that some of us who consider ourselves more modern and we're sort of thinking people, we are well-read people, it turns us off. You know, these uh, archaic, non-thinking Christians, they believe in uh, creation. How silly. You know, we have science now. Why would you believe in creation? I want to tell you that uh, whatever origin story you have for yourself, uh, for humanity, whatever's in your head, you still have to acknowledge the fact that uh, human beings are quite superior to all other creatures. You know, the scriptures talk about creation itself longing for the redemption, not of creation, but longing for the redemption of the children of God. That somehow we are stewards of everything here in the world. And there is a kind of lordship that we are called to practice. You know, and we symbolically um, acted in this way when we named all the creatures. And what that is telling us is just as a side note, first of all, that if you claim to be a Christian and you believe that God is somehow part of the origin story, you have to believe that you are stewards of the earth, that God made you in his image to rule over all of creation. Therefore, of all people, you ought to be the ones who love the earth the most. I know being uh, politically correct and recycling and composting, this is all like, uh, you know, Seattle is all hot and bothered about it. Uh, But you as Christians should lead the way if you believe that God made you to be the stewards, the leaders of our planet. So that's part of what it means to be created, to be crowned with glory and honor. And there is nothing left that is not subject to us because God made us in his image. Whether you believe that it was just the Big Bang, whether you believe God was behind the Big Bang, whether you believe in a literal uh, seven-day creation narrative, still you have to concede the fact that there's no other creature on this planet that has a higher level of consciousness than human beings. I know you love your dogs, and it's part of your family. I get it. But they cannot think and do and be the things that you are. For example, what is this picture behind me of? Anybody know? It's Pluto, taken in July by a space probe that human beings sent to Pluto, the outer edge of our solar system. First of all, that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And we also have very detailed 3D pictures of Pluto's largest moon. This isn't the moon. This is Pluto itself. But why go to Pluto? Why do we do this? And how are we able to do this? Well, it's because we're made in God's image. This is what it is to have the image of God imprinted on us. We are made to have dominion over creation. We, we went there, and then we sent back images at the speed of light, and we're looking at it now. In October, these images were taken in July. Is this amazing to you? Does this blow your mind? Why would we do this? 
because we are made in God's image. The gene for dominion is alive and well in us. We are great. We're great. But then there's verse 3. Verse 3 says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, the word creation feels archaic. The word salvation feels pretty archaic too, doesn't it? It's like relevant to people who are uneducated, you know, people who are superstitious, who don't have resources or who don't understand how things actually work. So they sort of just chalk things up to the gods and they make sacrifices and they pray and hope for salvation. But I want to suggest to you the reason the word salvation feels so archaic sometimes when it hits your ears is because you greatly underestimate how truly broken and fallen and depraved we are. We are greatly underestimating how truly incapable of helping ourselves we are. Yes, we are great. Yes, we are able to come to grips with the science that God created. But also, great was our fall. I'll give you a perfect story to illustrate this. And in my mind, this is the absolute perfect story because it's so mundane. It's so everyday. You know this is just, it permeates every aspect of life and history. So I was in QFC three weeks ago making a quick run. I was late for something, but I had to rush to get it. I had one of my kids with me. And if you've gone to the QFC on the north end of the island and you turn in uh, from 78th, what you know is that as soon as you turn in and you get to the front of QFC, it's diagonal parking, right? And one way on the right side, you can just pull right into it. But the other side, the left side, it's diagonal the other way so that cars coming from the opposite side could pull, pull could pull, pull right in. But if there's no spots on the right side, then you have to make an extra wide, an extra sharp turn to get into that other diagonal spot, right? How many of you have ever done anything like that before? It's a common move. I know we do it when we have to because we can't afford to waste 30 seconds and go around. We're Americans. We don't waste seconds like that, right? We, we have better things to do. So I'm pulling this maneuver, and I'm going in and out a couple of times. And then I notice that the adjacent uh, spot has, is occupied by a car, and there's a woman sitting in there, maybe waiting for a kid who went in or something to get something. She's sitting in there, and she's glaring at me. And then she goes like this, points her eyes, and lets me know that she's watching me. And I think initially she was afraid that I was going to nick her car or something because it is kind of a wide turn and a sharp turn. And then I park, and then I look over, and she's going like this, and she's wagging her finger at me, and she's cutting her eyes. And I just thought, great. This is the absolute perfect time to be Asian, to be driving like this. Why? I couldn't shake this incident. She's just hating on me. It's just venomous, you know? And one of my, the kid that was with me said, Dad, I don't think she's very happy with you. <laughs> did you do something wrong? And I said, ah, I think I did something wrong-ish. I don't think it's wrong. It's not optimal. 
But I've thought about this. You know, past, pastoral instincts kicking in. What would have to happen for me to help her? So I thought about this. I would go up to her car, and I'd very non-threateningly knock on her window because it can be perceived as a felony, you know. And, and um, I have a sister who is a district attorney, and she said, don't, put, don't open their car door. Don't stick any body part in there because that's a felony. You don't do that. And so I imagine myself knocking on her window very gently with a big old smile on my face to say, hi, can I help you? And then if she's able to say yes, then I have to ask her about her day because surely it wasn't about me. It wasn't about my driving. She came preloaded to that moment. She came packing heat to that incident. (laughs) She did. So she's having a bad day, right? She's probably having a really bad week. So I have to ask her about her marriage then, maybe next, you know, because surely things are happening in her marriage. And then I have to ask her about her kids, how things are going. And then we go deeper, and then I have to ask her maybe about her family of origin, you know. So how's mom? How's dad? How's their marriage? How are your relationships with your siblings? Oh, do you have any siblings? What is going on in your life in this generation and the last generation? We have to go at least three generations back. And then by the time I'm done with her, 10 years later, maybe I'll have employed 20 other specialists. Maybe she has an eating disorder. Maybe she's depressed. Maybe she's got anger issues. Maybe she's by, by, I don't know what's happening in her life. But if I start delving in and really say, you know, I'm smart I care, I'm going to help her, I roll my sleeves up, I give my life to helping her, would I be able to save her? What do you think? Can I be motivated for her? What if I want to save her, but she doesn't really want to do the work? What if she keeps sabotaging me every step of the way? What if she just makes a half-hearted attempt at things, just so on some subconscious level she can say, you know, I tried that, that didn't work either. Would I be able to save her? The woman who's going like this to me. The woman who's wagging her finger at me. Great is our fall. It is no wonder creation is groaning and waiting for the redemption of the children of God. You realize That woman, this is a perfect story because she lives on Mercer Island probably. She knows how that parking lot works. So she's been there many times before, which is why she was so upset with me in the first place. Maybe she thought, who is this off-island loser coming into our QFC? She's probably well-educated. She's probably well-financially resourced. She probably has at her fingertips all the things she would possibly need to make a comfortable, happy life for herself. And yet... And yet, she is not saved. And yet, she needs help. And yet, creation is groaning, waiting for her redemption as a child of God. You get my point? This is a perfect story because she is me. She is you. It's not that she's not educated. Maybe then we can blame the lack of education. It's not that she's not financially resourced. She probably is, and now we can't blame that either. Well, what is it? What is her problem? Why is she the way she is? 
Why are you the way you are? Why? We underestimate how much help we need. As great as we started out, to that extent, we have fallen. How will we escape? The author is saying, there is no escape. This is the only salvation. What I'm laying out here in chapter 1 and chapter 2, this is your only help. This is the great salvation. And if you neglect this way of being saved, there is no escape. Is there? Is he able to help you? Are they able to help you? Who and what will you turn to? Think about just one person in your life. And consider deeply how you might help them. And you begin to realize how helpless you are. This picture uh, is viewed from the summit of Mount St. Helens that Susie and I uh, were at on Tuesday. We took a vacation day to hike for her birthday. It was a long 17-hour day, uh, treacherous. But it was, to date, for me, the most amazing view I've ever seen. And I learned a new word uh, while we were there, cornice. You know what a cornice is? It's the ledge. And it's a dangerous place. And there's warning signs about the cornices of Mount St. Helens everywhere. Because if you get on the cornice, it looks like rock. It looks like it's solid. But it's actually dust that the volcano spews up every day. Dump trucks worth of dust that it spews every day. As you get closer to the top, some people are wearing dust masks. And so it's very fragile. And as soon as you get on it, you start slipping and you plunge to your death. And if you try to help somebody who is falling, you can't because you too will start plunging to your own death. And together and in parallel, you will plunge to your deaths. And as a pastor, my first thought was, good God, this is what life is like. We're all just trying not to upset the very ground we walk on. Because we know, whether it's relationships or whatever it is we're trying to balance, it's so fragile. It just takes one little misstep, and there's conflict. There's division. There is hatred. Like that lady. We didn't know each other a second ago, and now there is active judgment and hatred between us. Where did that come from? She's so mad at me. And now I'm so mad at her right back. Where did all that negativity suddenly come from? Why were we thrust in the throes of all that hatred? Because we are all just trying to survive. Look what verse 15 says. And this is the author identifying for us not just the symptoms of this fall, but what's really at the heart of it. The origin of all the symptoms we bear says and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. It's death and fear of death which is at the heart of our plight. Somehow that woman sitting in her car in the QFC parking lot on Mercer Island is afraid of death. And through fear of death, she has been a slave all her life. And somehow, somehow my presence, the way I move my car, somehow reminded her of death.
we have a great problem. And when we try to help each other, I want to give you a list of three things that happen. Okay, there's more, but these three simple ways to think about it. One, it's very complex. If you identify 12 issues in a person you're trying to help, and you pick one of those issues up, what you begin to see is that that one issue of the 12 is connected to 12 other issues. That takes you to level two. And then if you pick one of the 12 that are connected to one of the 12 you originally picked, then you realize there's 12 more connected to that one issue. And so on and so forth, you go deeper and deeper into the dark recesses of human nature. You realize it's really, really complicated. Very complex. Second thing is complicit. You understand that you have problems that you bring to bear on the person you're trying to help who's got problems. And pretty soon, because of your imperfect approach, because of your subjectivity, because of your conflict of interest, because of your foolishness and absence of wisdom, you start laying down your problems on top of their problems. And before you know it, you are complicit in the problem itself. And all of you together become interlocked in a worldwide, history-long, systemic network of problems. You are complicit. And last, you become combative. Love turns to hate. Jesus says, don't give your pearls to swine or else they will trample on the pearls and then turn and tear you to pieces too. How many of you have experienced that? Try to give advice to somebody. Just enter into whatever anxiety that they're in. And pretty soon, their negativity starts spewing in your direction. And now you're the villain. Say, whoa, when did I get involved? I wasn't a part of this. Oh, you are. You very much are. Complex, complicit, and combative. What do we do? What can we do? Great and glorious was our created beginning but great and ghastly is our current condition. But Hebrews chapter 2 tells us there is one greater than us, one greater than our problem, one greater than our plight and pattern in life. There is great hope because there is great help. I want to read you these verses here. Uh, I, want, I try to abridge it as much as possible, but I want you to get a sense of the gift that Jesus is to us. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful 
and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to, mo- to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I want to summarize these verses for you in one phrase. Here it is. Hope shows up. Oh, excuse me, that's the word when. Hope shows up when people who care show up. Hope is not just some intangible, ethereal feeling that you have. In the scriptures, the Bible talks about hope not disappointing us. And that word hope is synonymous for Jesus himself. That you begin to feel real hope when hope actually shows up. I have a story for this. My wife, my family, and I, we've been undergoing kitchen renovations. And for 10 weeks, we didn't have running water or sink in the kitchen. And then this past Wednesday, uh, a week and a half ago, uh, they installed our sink, but no plumbing. And we tried to get a plumber into our house from Wednesday all the way through. And it was Saturday, and still no plumber was available. We were randomly calling every plumber we can find. But everybody was busy, and our job was too small. So they didn't want to come. And so... The earliest one was a couple of weeks away, but we were just dying because it had been 10 weeks already. And so uh, we were at Michelle, our new children's ministry director's ice cream meet and greet on Saturday a week ago. And there were two guys that I knew were really handy. And so Susie and I shared our plight with them. And they said, you know what? We'll come over right after this event and we'll connect your kitchen faucet for you. And they did. And then they said, we're done. I mean, they got in there under the sink, just doing their stuff. And within the hour, they were done. And then after they were done, they said, go ahead, turn on the water. And our hearts were just leaping out of our chest. We were so excited. We videotaped the whole thing. There was (laughs) screaming. There was yelling. There was jumping, just arms pumping and For water, you know why? Can you imagine the emotions we felt when hope showed up? Running water. It was absolutely amazing. Jesus says, I understand your plight. I know where you're at. And I know he can't help you. And I know they can't help you. But I can And I know you're made in flesh and blood, so I will partake of flesh and blood. I will become your brother. And I will go where you are at, to the cornice that you are balancing on. And in your place, I will plunge to my own death. And then I will rise again from the dead. Now, you may not believe in the creation narrative. You may not believe in uh, even the existence of Jesus or that he lived and that he died and that he rose again from the dead. I don't know where you are at uh, personally, but, but you still have to answer the question, who will save you? You still have to acknowledge the fact that great is humanity's fall. As amazing as we are. I mean, we went to Pluto. Great is our fall. And somebody has to rescue us. And you have to acknowledge that there's a lot going on in this world. And every time we give power to another human being to actually be help, we start hurting. Because power corrupts us. Somehow, 
The world has been going on generation after generation, and we continue to ravage one another. We continue to shoot each other up. We continue to judge each other. We continue to hate. The negativity continues to grow. And even if you don't believe in God or in Christ, you still have to acknowledge that you need help. And you have to answer the question, who is your help? Who cares enough to show up and be your hope? Is it him? Is it them? Jesus alone. That's the creation narrative. He is able to enter into creation and redeem. That's the redemption narrative. Save humanity. Verse 7 and 10. For God, you have made him man for a little while lower than the angels. For it was fitting for him, God, to perfect the author of their salvation, Jesus, through sufferings. Now these two verses have God, Jesus, and man all in it. The other verses, they kind of talk about man. They kind of talk about God. They talk about Jesus. But here it comes all together. That God made us for a little while lower than the angels. Under, I have that phrase underlined for us, for a little while. What that means is we are in process. We are suffering now, but the suffering is this process we are in. And Jesus had, has entered into our process to save us. That Jesus cares about us. That we are God's children and Jesus is our brother. He's our elder brother. Uh, one of my favorite uh, preachers is Tim Keller. He has a staff pastor named Charlie Drew. And this is a quote from Charlie Drew's mom. This, so this is a quote three degrees removed. Uh, but she says this, and I just love this. She says, once you become a parent, you'll only be as happy as your unhappiest child. This is God saying, I refuse to be happy until the least of my children are as happy as the happiest of my children. I've sent my son to save you. I want to give you an image. I've been saving this picture for months, actually. I came across this. Uh, let me just describe this for the recording and for those of you who are in the back. What's, what it says is this. There are 140 million people born every year. Seven billion people are alive on earth right now. 57 million die each year. And 108 billion have lived and died on earth so far. It's this hourglass flow of humanity, of human history. Let me tell you, Jesus alone is worthy to enter into this flow of humanity, living and dying to save us. Try to imagine if there is one person you can think of that can stand behind humanity 
and say, I love you and I care and I will help. There is no one, no, not one, apart from Christ. I want to give you two application points and then a short conclusion and then we'll close. The first is remember. Remember this. Remember, remember, remember that you will continue to suffer for as long as you live. That's for a little while. You're in this season, this this, this, uh, dispensation of human history called for a little while. And Jesus has entered into this season of humanity's existence to enter into our suffering, not to rescue us from suffering short-term, but to redeem us long-term. And so what that means is we are going to suffer, not any less, but with perspective, knowing that Jesus suffers with us and that through his suffering, he is working to save us. It's sort of the theology of through, that God calls us to go through suffering. If you claim to be a Christian, you don't suffer any less. You just learn how to suffer better. In fact, if you are a believer, God calls you to suffer more because he's calling you to intentionally engage areas of suffering in the world to be redemptive agents, to be the presence of Christ in areas of suffering. It's what we call mission and service. So you will not suffer less. You are actually called to suffer more. Remember, 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 if Jesus suffers, we're not greater than him. We too are called to suffer. But in the midst of your suffering, I want to give you a second application point. It's whisper. It's amazing to me how frequently I forget to ask for help. Just I'm caught up in my own problem or some situation arises, and then I just start tackling it. But then so much uh, better when I remember to stop and say, God, please help. Please help. There's so much rich theology when you say the one word, help. There's a theology of the fall, theology of the redemption, theology of God, theology of man, theology of humility, theology of redemption, help is such a loaded, powerful word. It at once acknowledges your weakness and at once invokes his compassion and competence. And so whisper, help, help, help. Uh, Chapter 2 is very dense, very loaded. And I think the first several times I read it, I had no idea what I had just read. And some of you may have experienced that. So what I did uh, was I summarized the whole chapter for us in about one quarter of the length. And what I want to do is, as our conclusion, I want to read it for us. And I think it'll have high uh, meaning for you. So let me read this as our conclusion. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, that he might taste death 
for everyone. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he gives me help. He had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Amen. 